0: Property manager in France was very different than here in Canada. Okay. Uh, it's almost like it's a weird thing. It's a weird comparison, but it was like every time I spoke about our product, people thought that I was a property manager and not a property management software. Right,
1: guys, episode number eighty-seven, Francois. You're back in uh, back in Canada and back on the uh, back on the podcast. How you feeling? That's
0: correct. I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be back in Toronto. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a while since I was gone. I think like six, almost eight months. So a lot has changed since with the pandemic and Enzo Connect, myself, and pretty much everything. So <laughs>
1: absolutely, yeah. I've been we've been keeping in touch with um, you know your journey with uh, over LinkedIn. Uh, you've been uh, you know putting a lot of updates there. But uh, since we reached out and and we started to connecting again, uh, you let us know you've been uh, you know you've been quite busy, man. During uh, during COVID pa- time. Last we talked, you were stuck in France, um, you know on amid lockdowns. Um, you know you're originally from France, but uh, you know uh, you're you're telling us how you want to get back home, get back into the startup grind. but uh, how's it been how's it been working remotely and getting uh, getting things done remotely?
0: Yeah, so it's it's been it's been challenging for sure. Um, so when we last spoke, I think it was back in March or something, uh, and France had just gotten into lockdown. So it was a really strict lockdown, no going out, I was yeah. stuck in my parents' place. Um, and it was a bit tough to adapt from like a working environment with my co-founder and our team to suddenly, you know, COVID-19, we're in the travel industry and it seems like everything's just going downhill from there. Um, I think the first two months were probably the toughest part, figuring out what we were going to do, if we were going to completely pivot the product, if I was going to come back to Toronto anytime soon. Uh, but eventually we sort of adapted and like, it was like, yeah, it was, it was just a lot of research, a lot of. Zoom calls and Skypes and Hangouts until we figured out um, where where we're going with things.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, last time we spoke, like when you first came on, um, you talked about how amid lockdown in France, like people were not allowed outside without like uh, proper documentation. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to put out yeah. a form and like to state the purpose of why you're outside and stuff yeah. like that. Um, how long were you dealing with all that in France? Like, what was your journey like?
0: So, I think, so it started off with like two months of that. Um, mm-hmm. It went up until I think May eleventh, and then they started sort of letting people go out a bit more. Um, and I actually took advantage of that time to start traveling again, We're not travel you know around the world for fun, but more so for work and identifying different opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I noticed that like it went from really strict to really not strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's back to being strict because while well, France is just paying the consequences of I think, making things a bit too loose for uh, for the summer of 2020. Yeah. Um, but I still see the difference. And if anything, I see the difference now that I'm back in Toronto of how people handle COVID and lockdown and the seriousness of it, um, where I find there's a, a much bigger social pressure here in Canada to abide by lockdown rules, mm. uh, even though the rules themselves are less strict. Whereas in France, there's sort of that revolutionary mentality of, you know, we're not going to follow what the government says, <laughs> and therefore the government puts these really, you know, strong restrictions because they know people would just not respect them. Um, so very different, um, but it was also, I think, a great learning experience to see the cultural differences in uh, well, the, the business that I'm running, essentially the the home management platform that we're building, and how that applies to different types of hosts. Um, one of the one of the key things that I, I noticed when I was there, uh, so I was going out meeting a few people or you know, off Zoom primarily, but in some cases also in person, respecting socially distanced measures. And I noticed that the term property manager in France was very different than here in Canada. Okay. Uh, it's almost like, it's a weird thing, it's a weird comparison, but it was like, every time I spoke about our product, people thought that I was a property manager and not a property management software. And the hmm. reaction to it was, uh, sort of like, oh, another one. And that's because in Europe, there are just so many boutique property management firms or um, hotel systems, if you will, management uh, people, if you will. Um, so it was really interesting to discover a whole new market that I was familiar with culturally, let's say, I just knew about, you know, I know France, I'm from there, et cetera, but I didn't know this specific industry and the impact it has in the country. So good mm-hmm. good experience so far. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so Europe has like a lot more like independent owners, right? When it comes to hospitality, right? Like those more like more like the bed and breakfast kind of environments, right? Like or specialty or hospitality services.
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's been a, there's been a big shift. There's been a big mm. shift in terms of how we've adapted the product. Initially, we were focused on building out this property management software for individual homeowners, automating the entire process from check-in to to getting the cleaning team. And now what we've realized is our niche isn't property management systems as a whole, but rather a very strong communication tool. So what our our pitch essentially changed from, hey, we have a tool to help you automate everything Mm -hmm. to, hey, we're going to help you lower your operational costs all while maintaining your inventory. And the biggest problem these property managers were facing, whether they're small or large scale, was that they're getting just as many inquiries on their properties. They just don't have the manpower to answer all of the messages and so they seem mm. unresponsive or not professional enough uh when in fact it's just that you know they've had to cut off their cut their team in half because of covid and not getting enough bookings so they're getting all the, the messages but they're not actually following through with the booking because of the pandemic so we decided to find a way to help them out with that and enzo's essentially sort of pivoted from being a let's say full-scale one-stop shop property management system to a, a really narrowed down focused communication platform that leverages smart home devices and our own chatbots and scheduled messages, unified inbox and so on. Um, um, it's not a pivot, it's a refocus if you will, uh, but it's been helpful to sort of have that focus so that we're not jumping around different avenues and we really know where we're going.
1: No, definitely. Um, so let's talk a little more about that pivot, right? Like, is does that, that come from, again, more ca- ca- customer insights, uh, talking to customers or was it a, a, a shift that happened in the market because of COVID, right? Like how yeah. much was influenced by it either?
0: I, I think uh, it's it's two, then one. Meaning it's the the shift happened because of the pandemic, which affected customers and therefore affected us. Mm-hmm. So we were in chat with homeowners and property managers, and we found ourselves being a bit tone deaf, uh, trying to sell a PMS system, a property management software. That's what it stands for in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And so we're out there trying to sell this and we find ourselves being a bit tone deaf because, uh, well, you know, the, the primary concern they have is how am I going to get guests? And so I had homeowners message me being like, what I could do for you is if you rent out my property for the year, and I'm like, no, 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 that's not what we do. You know, we're, we're not a Saunders model. We're not trying to <laughs> do some swaps with with rentals and things like that. Um, but the I think where it crystallized was we had a conversation with a company called Leeftown, uh, that actually... I think got us to the next step. So they're bringing on all of their units from one of our competitors, IGMS, onto us. Um, and they also invested about half of the, the the pre-seed round. We don't disclose publicly the amount, but mm-hmm. um, they they essentially raised or, or invested half of that round in us. So they they really believed in what we were doing, especially from the communication standpoint. We were still going in with the direction of well, you know, we're going to focus on communication right now, but we're looking to do all of these different things. And over time as we've been working with them literally every single day with their account managers building out the tool, seeing how they want it to work, we've noticed that there's actually a niche just on the communication that could be expanded even further. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't need to go out and develop accounting tools and dynamic pricing systems and things like that. We can let that flow with other companies. Let's focus on building out this one specific communication platform. And so very much customer driven, and the reason it's customer driven is because of the impact of COVID. Um, that operational cost I was mentioning. These, these these clients are essentially they you know they had 20, 30 people managing 50, hundred thousand units and they can only afford to have five now. and yeah. they still need to manage those units. They don't want to lose on that inventory. Uh, so we come in and help them automate that. and it's been a's been an interesting sort of shift in mentality because it, it feels like a smaller problem. But it's it's not. It's just as big of a problem. It's just more focused, if anything.
1: Mm-hmm. No, definitely. So it, it seems like you spent a lot of this time talking to customers, getting direct feedback. Now, uh, those customers, has it been the end customers? People who actually, you know, like what do they look like? Are they independent people, you know, who, who own second, third properties? Are they property management groups? Um, you know, larger conglomerates of like of, of corporate, uh, you know, corporate funded uh, co- uh, clientele? Is it REITs? Like, what yeah. do they look like?
0: So... Uh, They, there's a lot of different uh, facets to the type of customers that we've been looking at and speaking with. I mean, we're talking about individual homeowners or, you know, the guy who has a a home, he's renting on Airbnb all the way to your, you know, medium-sized property management uh, companies, large-scale property managers, property managers that have built internal systems, property managers that use external systems, or even property management systems themselves. So we've been really looking at, everyone on, on, on that scope to see where we fit best. Um, and, and currently I feel like our niche is actually on those large scale property managers that have built internal systems and realize they cannot go further than that. They can't scale more, they can't develop that technology, they don't have the resources for it, they're not getting the money for it. So we're targeting them uh, primarily, but that doesn't mean we're, we're not looking at individual homeowners and smaller property managers. We still wanna keep those conversations going because The way I see it is the homeowner to the large-scale enterprise property manager is just an evolution in time. Mm -hmm. Everyone started off as a homeowner, and then eventually, for those who had that ambition, became a large-scale property manager. So I think it's actually important to keep those conversations going with those small homeowners, because you don't know. Maybe Mm -hmm. in in five years, they're going to have 150,000 units, and (laughs) you're going to be glad that you kept those conversations going, right? You Mm -hmm. also realize different problems um, that these different scale uh, skilled companies have, or individuals have. Your your small property manager, uh, he might have a tough time communicating basic information like Wi-Fi, how to get in, things like that, because he has a high turnover. Um, whereas your large scale property manager may have automated parts of that communication, but is having a tougher time organizing the clients and in a in a, in a sales funnel um, um, and and figuring out you know so different problems, different types of customers. We're still exploring that. Uh, but right now we are focused in selling this at what I like to call mega clients, so people who bring fifty thousand or more units, and uh, and are trying to update their their tech stack, if you will, to help automate that. So it's been fun, definitely,
1: definitely. Um, I should have mentioned it before, but maybe we should uh, you should give us a walkthrough of your of your new system, if you if you are able to.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'd give you a walkthrough right now, but it's I only be able to give you a QA thing. So if anything, I'll send you guys a live demo. Uh, or like a demo video for you to play around and, and see how it works. Yeah. Um, but so far it's, it's the platform has definitely changed. I think there's a lot of updates to do in terms of design personally. Mm-hmm. but the, the the team that's using it, it's live now. Um, the company that is using it, it seems to be happy for for the time being with the designs um, and the features. So mm-hmm. we're excited to see how how that changes.
1: So, what have the challenges been for you? Um, has it been to talking to the customer and understanding what the market's been? Has it been the product, developing a technology tool? Um, you know, like are, are, you're not a technical founder yourself, right? You had to learn these I, skills. I
0: you are. I, I am. Yeah, 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 I graduated okay. at U of T in computer science and cognitive science, but I'm. I'm no longer necessarily doing much of the tech. I, I help manage them. my co is really like the go-to guy for this. Gotcha. Uh, he like it, it, you know We've gone from a couple lines of code to millions of lines of code. And at this point, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you where everything is at. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think so. It's been different problems we faced every month. Um, yeah. I, I found this graph the other day, a friend sent me this meme. And it was like, you know, the life of an entrepreneur. And it was like a just up and down up and down up and down and that's exactly what we experienced over the past 6 months you know some days you're like this is over let's stop this let me go get a real job like all my other friends and you know and and stop this nonsense and then the next day you're like wait a minute this actually might be a a new direction so it's it's a real adventure let's put it that way um, in terms of the problems that we were facing well back in March the biggest problem we were facing was fundraising uh, we'd raised just a bit of money from a creator fund uh, but not enough to really get us anywhere; just enough to keep operations going for the next six to eight months, uh, stretching ourselves a bit thin. Um, but we managed to to successfully raise that that amount. Um, the next step was, you know, identifying the sort of roadmap of building out the product, meeting deadlines. Uh, we had a few issues there of identifying what we could do in which sort of time frame. You know, you build something out, there's bugs you didn't anticipate for those bugs, you're delayed by a couple weeks. So. That was sort of the second problem. Um, I think right now, I don't wanna say there's no problem. There are always problems, and that's the beauty of entrepreneurship is you're constantly solving new problems. Uh, A month ago, the problem we were facing was hiring. Uh, Mm -hmm. So finding the right talent, QA engineer, we were looking for someone uh, to help us continuously test the platform. And I think right now, the biggest challenge is locking in uh, our next big whale. Uh, So we are out there messaging, you know, 40, 50 property managers every single day uh, and just having as many conversations as we can to sort of see where this first deal is leading us to, and what's the next opportunity, um, because we will be looking into fundraising again in a couple months. Uh, so it's it's very cyclical. It's like yeah. six months fundraising, six months product. At least on my my end, uh, yeah, my job. Yeah. It's like you know I shift every six months from one to another. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the next the next challenge, not problem, but challenge would be. Uh, you know, getting that confirmation from this next, next big client, we have a few leads, uh, but we're still in the process of, of negotiating and talking about how we integrate with their tech stack and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, 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 you're you up a, a trifecta of, uh, of, um, of responsibilities, right? Product being chief, like, you know, how to design the product better, how to better make the user experience better, um, how to make it tailored better for what the clients are clients want. And then two is again growth, right? How to get more people on the platform, how to get more users, and the four and the third being, you know, the the fundraising. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Shifting back and forth. So how has um development skill sets for that been? Right? Like where have you gotten those skills from?
0: Yeah. So um, so when I first started, I, I once again I came from a technical background, but I loved pitching, I loved presenting things and projects and I I'd done some hackathons and things like that, so, but but not enough to really be where I'm at now. And I think the, there's two or three directions to it. One, I joined a Masters of Entrepreneurship at the University of Cambridge, and that's been you know tremendous help in sort of crystallizing and formalizing some of that help. Uh, you know, how do I raise money? I, I thought it was just send a pitch deck, get a check, right? Two steps done. Turns out there's a couple more steps to it: uh, due diligence and, and all sorts of different things around it. Um, so parts of it was my master's, which really helped sort of create that business uh, side of things. Uh, the second one would be I'd say just self-taught. You know, you you you, you learn, you you try, you fail, you learn again. It's you just all about trying, failing, and 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 stepping up from that. Um, reading books, uh, I highly recommend the Lean Startup, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, or Thinking Slow and Fast. I always forget which one it is, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> And you know, reading books about how startups have grown, and then um, also recently the Founders Factory. We joined an accelerator in the UK. One of the UK's top accelerators called Founders Factory, and I think that has shifted us from being um, a project, if you will, to a, a real company. You know, mm-hmm. we're setting up objectives. We have a hiring plan. We have uh, specific metrics on onboarding people and how to do that, creating a culture and and values and visions and missions, like really setting us up to be two guys in a garage building something to a, a real team building uh, a product uh, with, yeah, with countless people supporting. So,
1: yeah, I remember seeing that uh, update. So you went from, you know, living in France and then you moved, went over the over the pond to uh, London?
0: So I didn't actually go. I didn't physically go. No, so I stayed in France. When I said I traveled. going from around France, I, I okay. wanted to stay close to my family. I, I did drop to Italy quickly because there was a, a few property managers I wanted to get in touch with and it was you know easy to travel there um but I, I didn't unfortunately get the chance to go back to the uk and, and and lock that deal in in person so it was all done remotely um but i met the guys from founders factory uh through the creator fund back in march so creator fund invested march 7th of mm-hmm.
1: 2020. so when and is the creator fund
0: yeah so i don't know if you know do you know front row ventures in toronto okay yeah yeah, so they're like a student-led firm, except they're not led by students. They're led by, you know, Jamie McFarlane, who's an actual uh, proper VC. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they have an army of students that go out and do deal flow and, and so on. And so it's a really interesting model. Their creator fund is the European equivalent of dorm room fund in the U.S. or front row ventures uh, in Canada. And they're backed by Founders Factory. So when I'd gone and visited them, I think back in March or, or earlier than that, January, Um, really before COVID was on my radar. um, I had met a few of the people from Founders Factory, including their head of investment, uh, Dylan, who's actually based out of, comes from Toronto. So he's back in Toronto now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd met a few of them in person then, but never, I didn't get the chance over the summer to to catch up again. So we've been doing everything remotely, unfortunately. Still getting value out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, jumping like, People like generally go from an incubator to an incubator. Like I remember, like there was a time where you, you like kind of like sub, like 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 it was like a, a leapfrog event, right? Go from an incubator to an accelerator to a better accelerator, and and you move forward. Yeah. But now, like there seem to be very specialty incubators, and accelerators that focus on a very small and and a very like niche categories. Yeah. And People kind of join them for that purpose. Right? Yeah. And the the so the in, the innovation ecosystem has kind of drastically changed. How Absolutely. is navigating that? Like, how, like, like, was the deciding factor to go to Founders Factory? Was it because you were recommended to go there by somebody? Did you research that beforehand and you're like, oh, they developed a set of skills that we really needed? How is navigating that look like?
0: Yeah. So, back, back when we made that decision or before making the decision, um, so we had just gotten a message from Y Combinator saying we were scheduled for an interview. Uh, and so we were really excited about that. And then we also had, Founders Factory that was really interested, and what we realized was uh, Y Combinator was much more fundraising focused, whereas Founders Factory was much more operational focused. So I knew a few founders who had gone through YC, you know, raised on on large valuation, ten million plus things like that. But and it's great, you get the money, you lower your equity position, either you you don't lower your equity position too much. It's amazing, um, and they do a great job of that. But you know, with the recent turn of events, I've also seen a lot of founders that weren't able to sustain those valuations and and it ends up just not being the, the right direction. Now, bear in mind we did go through the interview process of Y Combinator. We unfortunately didn't make it past that. So you know everything I'm saying is to be taken with a grain of salt. I've never actually been through the Y Combinator process. Um but that was sort of our decision. We realized okay, and, and this is before we had been uh, rejected, we were still in the process of making that decision. We decided, well, let's leverage Founders factory because they're operational focus. We just raised money. We're not looking to raise any more money. The goal here is to grow the business, to get from a few homes to a few thousand to a few hundred thousand homes, not, not just to raise money to raise money. Um, I think when it comes to picking out an accelerator, I totally agree with you. I think there's niche accelerators incubators in, in different fields. I think it really depends on where you want to grow, how you want to grow. Like Mm -hmm. if you're looking at, I don't know, I know Toronto, I think Techstars has this thing for PropTech that's really good if you're looking to stay in North America and grow from there. But if you want to start sort of exploring the European market, well, that's where Founders Factory might be a good bridge, uh, especially being in the UK, to open those doors in uh, Europe. So we made our decision based on the fact that they were operationally focused. Um, The team was excited about our product, but also sort of had very specific plans as to how to help us grow. Like it wasn't just, you know, join our accelerator they give you money you join and nothing happens like it's we have weekly meetings and monthly meetings with the whole team and we have full support where they don't just tell us what to do but they actually do things as well for us that's where I was like okay great you know it's like you're increasing your team even though they don't work for you they're essentially working for you in, in most cases so that was our, our decision um, and then the funds obviously as well uh, and the recognition uh, factor, you know, getting into these accelerators is always a a great boost for PR and and asserting what you're doing.
1: No, definitely. Um, have you ever checked out uh, Kohler's uh, International? They have uh, a prop tech uh, incubator. That's the one I was yeah. Found. So
0: that's the one I was referring to the, the yeah, prop tech yeah. here in Toronto. I think I think it's isn't it managed by TechStars or it was founded by TechStars.
1: I'm not that, sure. That's I know.
0: exactly what I was mentioning. Yeah.
1: I, I think there's one where Collier's is involved in, but they also have an internal in-house one that they run and manage. I remember uh, one mm. of uh, the, their, the manager of that manager, I think Ari, he came on our show last year and he was talking about it, how like a giant enterprise like Collier's it, it, like, you know, they're becoming more incubator focused where they're working mm. with these incumbent prop tech, property technology companies. And it works better for them to work with these innovation, like smaller companies are innovating at a ground level, and guiding them through that process using using their own uh, capabilities, because uh, um, you know they, they, you can, they can mix their commercialization uh, uh, their commercialization capabilities, uh, the smaller companies uh, invention of, of like a new ways of doing things, and then together they're creating innovation together, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the, the way they described it is like. You know, it makes sense why more and more large-scale enterprises are becoming more incubation-focused, right? Rather than you know traditional R&D of creating things in-house, they are opening up their doors to work with uh, smaller and smaller companies and uh, helping them, go- helping them grow and making, you know, um, making investments, making um, strategic partnerships, uh, even buying them out. Um, it, it seems to be a, a most strategic way. Like when, so when it comes like the in that kind of point of view, like. Do you see yourself like partnering with like a larger prop tech company or a party manager firm or even like working in-house with them?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, we're essentially doing that, not necessarily through the accelerator, but with our current customer, that's exactly pretty much what we're doing. And I think one of the things that you mentioned so accurately is the fact that, you know, these, these accelerators that are being backed by large name companies in, in our case, not Factory is backed by L'Oreal, uh, EasyJet, you know, the, these big players. Um, I think the reason is, these accelerators become like a testing ground for innovation, right? Of, of, of Intelligent people in a room, you tell them fix different problems and they do it. And it's sometimes better than having to build the team in-house when you're saving a lot of money, you're giving them creative freedom. And if it's really great for your company, then eventually you've created a sort of a, a channel for you to potentially acquire them since you're essentially invested in them already. So, so yeah. it's a smart model for sure. Um, for us, our, the value added wasn't necessarily having EasyJet as, you know, one of Founders Factory's partners and things like that. We're not necessarily in the airline. Um, but the fact that they're able to get these kinds of connections um, is important because it just opens the doors to new conversations, new property managers. Um, yeah, and in terms of like, you know, us being uh, directly in partnership with these large scale companies. I mean, absolutely. That that is that. It's maybe not right now. We're doing this with one client. We're focused on that at this stage, but it, it is definitely part of the roadmap to continue these conversations, continue these potential partnerships with uh, those large scale companies.
1: Yeah, sure. Do you um, follow uh, Scott Galloway at all from
0: L Two a Why does that ring a bell?
1: Scott, yeah, Scott Galloway, Galloway. I talk about him a lot because uh, dude become like like my like my new Joe Rogan almost, right? Um, he talk he. He's a professor at NYU. He has his own marketing firm. Uh, he does a, He's gotten really famous over the years. Uh, but one of the one of the things he's coined uh, during COVID is he's calling this period the financial period the Great Dispersion. And what okay. he's seeing is that you're seeing a lot of transfers of wealth, a lot of transfers uh, of of movements for, to technology, right? And, and part of that is uh, you're seeing a, a dispersion from the greatest asset financial assets in the world, which is commercial real estate, moving to the second largest. Uh, uh, financial asset in the world which is residential real estate right mm. um especially since like you know all these commercial buildings are being underutilized people are uh, working from home more right went from we went from an environment where 4% of workers on average worked um, remotely to now 40% are working remotely yeah. Right. And uh, you know, so literally, uh, like the wealth is being sucked out of the commercial real estate uh, uh, assets and into residential homes, where people are, you know, they're moving out of downtown cores, they're moving into larger scale homes, um, you know, propping up the the like you know industry for like smaller townships now, right? Yeah. You've seen the exodus from Silicon Valley into smaller places like Nashville. Well, Nashville's not that small, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, but like b- b- like people who have traditionally gone to like these larger cities to create companies or to work in professional environments. Or they're going yeah. to a smaller town environment, or, so, you know and and it's like you're seeing a dispersion of people coming from the, from these cores and taking their talents and their resources and their networks with them. Yeah, right? So like part of that is a, is a new cultural uh, like it's actually reversing the culture divide, right? It used to be that if you need to if you wanted to do anything great or do anything big, you move to a city right it's like location mm. location location
0: yeah right? yeah absolutely
1: like you know being being uh, being close to where the action is by by association you get some action out of it yourself right you're more likely absolutely. to but that's shifted yeah right um like uh, the co-founder of angelist you know he talked about this as well um he 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 talked about the factor of like technology especially the internet is actually culturally regressing us right because the fact that we, we're connected everywhere and we are more likely become freelancers and more ethereal working relationships. It's almost like, you know, rather than people, the rush of people going into cities and like, you know, joining these, these these large corporations, being a cog in a machine that's taken care of, but you work a job for 30, 40 years and like, you know, you develop this craft in this very specialized niche, right? And you specialize. Now people are more forced to become generalists, right? And become yeah. more freelance models where you're your culturally, your, it's like, it's almost like you become like a, like a hunter gatherer you know like you're yeah, like, you're yeah. like you're forced to hunt your your, your for your kill you're like you're your, your, for your job for like a gig for a freelance position or you know or a temporary ethereal position right so culturally we're we're, we're regressing as well as even though technology is uh, technology is growing right it's like it's breaking apart the molds that uh, cities has put us into which is you know you be a specialized worker you live in this specialized environment in a highly urbanized environment well, sure. right so, uh, what I'm really interested in is is a cultural changes that's happening here. But part of that cultural change that is driving it is a new financial change, right? As as residential real estate picks up and things move forward, like where does that look like from like a, from a business analyst point of view, right? Like you're probably looking into these kind of things. Like, what are the trends right now that are happening? Like, are there hot spots picking up right now, uh, you know, that are particularly interesting for um, you know people looking to invest in, into real estate? Is there any trends that are uh, becoming more notable, right? What are you seeing? What's exciting? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, so like w- one of the key things. So I, I just moved out of my old place, a little shoebox apartment I had in Toronto, to a slightly bigger shoebox. Um, and, and one of the, the reasons is because you know we've seen right now in Toronto rent prices go down. You can go back to like sort of the 2014, 2015 prices that we had. Um, and, and part of that is what I've noticed. Or I mean, what people have noticed is. First of all, all the students that graduate, that, you know, start a job and wanted to move downtown, be in that financial core and work around, you know, their, their office and be around their office 24-7, they're realizing, well, I can work from home, so I'm going to go back to mom and dad, and that way I don't have to pay rent, I'm saving money, and eventually mm-hmm. I'll be able to purchase a home or, you know, invest in real estate. That's sort of a, a, lot of my friends have been thinking that way, a lot of people I know have been thinking that way. Um, this creates sort of a void in the in these cities, these ghost cities, if you will, with, condos that are empty and 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 so on We're, I mean look at they're the coming out with the potential tax you know vacant units uh things like that to sort of push people to come back in the cities I, I don't know what the direction of that is but where I've analyzed I don't necessarily look at it necessarily just from a, a real estate real estate perspective but from a travel real estate perspective um it's sort of leveled the playing field in the sense that people still want to travel People mm. still want to go out and change sort of where they're at. They're just not going to go all the way to, you know, Cancun or Cuba or things like that. They're probably just going to go to Muskoka up north mm. or a cottage or drive to the next town over. Um, and so they're looking for places in these different hubs, no longer the sort of major cities. I haven't necessarily seen an influx of people from towns coming into cities. And that's probably because of the fear around the pandemic being sort of centrally located in large you know, uh, cities. But that that effect, that reverse effect of having, you know, hotels, essentially, not even condos, they're just straight up buildings that are filled with short-term rentals, uh, are now just sort of disappearing. And instead, we're seeing these sort of new experiences, these new homes appear in different areas, it's just a different trend. It shows that people still want to travel, they've just adapted to it. And I think to push it even further, um, because of the whole work from home thing, people are not only looking for a bigger place because they realize you know, I need a place to work and let's at least make it my home. I'm saving on commute, on my morning Starbucks or whatever other delicacies uh, you spend too much money on, you know, well, now you can spend that on rent or or whatever it is. Um, but also people thinking of like being nomads, you know, mm-hmm. working three weeks or a month in one home in Muskoka and then working a month in Calgary and working a month there and, and moving around in the same area, but in different homes just to mm-hmm. get different experiences, Um, so I wouldn't be able to, to say, you know, it's, it's one way or another way that the the shift is happening, but I think there's new models of, um, of, of real estate that are occurring because of this. And one great one I want to point out is, uh, key living, uh, which, you know, one of our advisors, Daniel Dubois is president of, and he has a whole new model of homeownership that's coming out. And I think it's really unique for, uh, this current period of, of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, I won't dive into it too much because myself, I, I don't understand the complexities of it uh, well enough. But you know, instead of renting or just buying, maybe look into Key Living, which is a, a new way of owning homes, a new way of of dealing with real estate. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, more like what what you're talking about, like the idea of being a nomad and you know being a Like, I feel like there's a shift or like a, a certain like need now for the dynamic labor force dynamics to change, right? Where yeah. For the 20th century, it was all focus was focused on the employer, employer first model, right? The employer yeah. has most of the power. Uh, unions were built to like counter uh, employer power, but generally, the employers set the jobs, set the uh, set the roles, um, say this is what's, uh, this is how much it, it's it's worth to me, and then uh, that drives the labor force. Whereas previously, that you know like. Um, there's these things where like like labor unions or labor guilds, right, where p- highly specialized workers would form these, uh, these, these communities and they focus together on crafting their abilities uh, uh, together, right, and sharing knowledge. And then people who want, the, want those special skill sets would hire the guild or hire the union and then they would task the people. Like the electrical, uh, electric, electricians union is uh, one of the best examples of this. They still follow this principle. Right? Yeah. if you're a unionized electrician the union gets you jobs it guarantees you jobs right mm-hmm. and most and most of like the high end uh, construction jobs or um, the uh, the employers hires the union right hires uh, uh, hires it and they find the right person right and they and they shift through it and they have seniority levels the senior people are right. are paid more and like they're they're given the more more lucrative ones and the, the beginner ones are put through their paces and tested right and the labor f- force there is different, right? Mm. And I feel like there's a certain pressure and a, there's a potential for the labor force to kind of regressed almost to that kind of point of view, right? Where like like if you can imagine like if you're like a uh, UX designer, right? And you're yeah. and you're a nomad, right? You you have this collective community of digital producers, right? And and together collectively, you know, you do one work, but like the work is like filtered down from that. So so companies can hire this uh, this collective, right? And then the work will filter down from there, and people kind of pick up gigs or within that stuff, or they do do collective things together. But then the 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 profits are kind of dispersed amongst them, right? Yeah. And subsidized yeah. into living standards and accessibility and and uh, training and tools and stuff like that, right? That's kind of shifting. So. Like you know, like do you ever see like that like and we're seeing this, right we're seeing more and more collectives actually forming mean, the actually uh, the, the, the the, term collective being used, or cooperatives being used uh, for uh, for these kind of things. Do you ever see like the need for real estate combining with that where like real estate like you know like the labor force would be like, you know what you can here are, are like you know digital houses and in California, these kinds of things exist, right? Like there are a few good models a few companies model uh, playing with this model where like you're part of this membership model. And part of that membership means you can live in any one of these membership communities. So you can just travel, pick up your bags, go to a different place, and call that place home, and all a like-minded community, all paying into the same kind of benefits and services, and you can travel around and work along, and it's kind of a shared resource. You, you, yeah, have I, you I, seen, I, seen
0: the models before? Yeah, yeah I've, seen, I've seen models like that, and I think it's a terrific idea. I don't think it's necessarily sustainable to, you know, mm-hmm. you doing that for. Your life. I think it's a great way for a certain demographic of people, a certain age, et cetera, group to do. Like my age, I would totally do that, you know? But, but, you know, I wouldn't see it as a a winner takes all. It's going to replace the entire real estate industry. Mm -hmm. We're not going to see your classic white picket fence home. I think it's there's different facets. People have different um, comfort levels that the pandemic has created. Some people are finding themselves much more comfortable being uh, you know in their home, with their family, somewhere like that. Other people want to create that sort of digital nomad uh, lifestyle. But to, to bring back on the topic of these these groups and um, the, in, in the workforce specifically, I think one thing to, to keep in mind, though, is the importance, and this is something I, I really learned over the past couple of months, and even though I knew about it and everyone told me how important it was, I didn't actually experience it until recently, and it's the importance of culture in a company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the issue I find with these collectives of talent where you know it's sort of outsourced, quick labor, you get some logos done or a website done, et cetera, is you don't actually work with enough people to create Um, a real team and and solve real problems together. Now, I see it as three different ways. Either we go all contractors and it's all everyone's contractor for everything. There's no more employees in the rest of the world. Everyone's contracting for their own work. Um, We find a balance, which I think is being pushed more on the contractor side, which is fine. So like a more senior team of people that are doing, you know, the thinking, the the problem solving, and then the more junior side of contractors that are actually Mm -hmm. doing some of the The more the manual work, if you will, or back to how it was before COVID. You know, your employees they come into the office, and I think the number two is the real shift and the importance of collectives um, in terms of employees. Where it's good to have those collectives, it creates a group of people with that can share resources. But it's also important for them to realize that they need to be part of a culture. If that culture is that freelance group or whatever it may be, fine, you know. But if you're looking to work full time on a project, it's important to be part of the culture of that project, and so. To tie that to, you know, I know I'm shifting from one to the other, but mm-hmm. to tie that over to the real estate side of things, it's it's a great idea, I think, to create these collectives of real estate where you can travel in this similar groups, but it's also important to recognize that you know you can't be associated just to one group. You need to go out and explore new ones. And so the best way for you to do that is to get out of your comfort zone and to, to, yeah, just step out and not be too stuck in a collective, you know? Yeah. Um So it's a balance. It's a balance. Mm -hmm. It's identifying yourself with a group all while keeping an eye open for other opportunities and other groups and so on. But I've I've seen the the real estate model of of those things. It's, I love it. I I think it's really cool.
1: (laughs) No, definitely. Um, Going back on that, like, you know, being an entrepreneur, uh, being a innovator, going through these uh, incubators and accelerators, do you, what do you feel about that kind of model being applied to us? Right. To, like, like, you know, instead of like these ethereal uh, incubators where you go in and, you you know, and you get, you know, you figure out some kind of task or help you with a certain part of your journey, right? Like one of the models that, like, like uh, let a lot of the research has thought about is like, why do companies, especially startups, need to be focused, so focused on becoming like like, uh, like its own independent entity, right? If the product is so good or so innovative it can change, can there be a collective force behind it, you know? So, Imagine the same kind of collective environment for entrepreneurs or innovators, right, mm-hmm. where they have all these resources, uh, the, all these incubators, specialized the hubs, real estate involved for them. Do you feel like that it could be, ever be a model where, rather than being a completely um, like a model where you know you're you're you're, you're a company, you're, 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 you're founders and you're launching a separate, completely separate vehicle, you're part of a collective of innovators. And you're launching multiple products under that collective together, and you have you can leverage the power of of, of this of the collective entrepreneurship community or innovator innovator community uh, to launch this thing out together. And because, and you as a founder would ultimately be um, be can deleverage your risk. So even if your project or product fails, you're still taken care of by the other projects, other things being launched out there.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. I think that's the the concept, the the small scale of that is the advisory role, essentially, mm-hmm. that a lot of you know building an advisory board, your advisors, that's exactly what they're doing. And I, I'm looking to actually join a few a few teams like that um, on the advisory side. and it's you know you're diversifying your investments in a way, um, and your investment being the time that you spend uh, with these companies. Uh, and same goes with my my board of advisors they're they're diverse finding their, their portfolio they're investing in different types of companies and spending time with those different types of companies um but in terms of ownership i think it's important to you know still have that clear structure because mm-hmm. decisions be made and advisors and cl- groups like that you, you can't always come up with the uh, a, a unified decision which might create some further tension so i think what you're describing if anything is a um, amplified version of an advisory board and, mm. and you know, reduce it or anything. I think it's awesome. I think that's exactly how it is. And the way I see it is this entrepreneurs need to help each other out. You know, we're, we're all facing similar problems in a way, fundraising, product development, growing a team, finding developers and all of these yeah. problems everyone's. Having. So the best way to do that is to help each other. out. Now I find that with my advisors and, and the, the other entrepreneurs I, I hang out with, uh, I had a buddy of mine refer a, uh, engineer who now works with us, right? Uh, he couldn't afford him anymore. So we took on his role. It's about sharing. It's about creating mm. that sort of uh, amongst founders. And one of the downsides of the pandemic is it has halted a lot of events that were targeting that sort of, you know, cohesion amongst entrepreneurs and and groups. Um, but I think people have handled it differently in the sense that they're being a bit more proactive and going out, not just going to an event and, oh, I met someone, but rather, you know, going out and messaging people um, to to create those conversations. So it's, uh, for what you're referring to, I think it's an interesting topic to see if it would be able to like have a pool of friends that build the, you know, build different startups and all kind of help each other out. But I would, I'd be scared that there'd be a loss of focus, you know, Mm. where like working on too many things. And they all become hustles more than projects. Not that there's any problem with the hustle, It's how you make yeah. money, why not? But, uh, Yeah, you know, this is a thought that you...
1: experiment um, that I ran with, like, a, a few other entrepreneurs, right? And I was asking them this, right? like, how do you deliberate your risk, right? Think about it, like, if, you know, it's one thing to be in your 20s and like, and, like, hustling and grinding, right? But later in life, when you're a family, when you're a mortgage due, and, you know, the so one of the things we're we're experiencing is that you know we see more uh, of a fandom around entrepreneurship, right? Mm. We see this whole pop culture phenomenon, right? Like on, entrepreneurs are like the are like is the counterculture of today, right? Yeah. Just like '70s it was the hippies and like '90s it was like the rock and roll brands, right? Like we're like uh, we're like the the counterculture, and so it's become cool now. But yet the risk of entrepreneurship is too high because cost of living standards are too high and. Um, you know, like if you actually see the growth curve of um, of innovators, right, it's actually at an all time low since the 70s, It's actually been a downward spiral, even though you hear more about it and you hear more yeah. success stories and you hear more people doing it. You're more likely to find more people doing it now, mostly because of the Internet. Uh, it's actually less people are able to do it because because life's gotten expensive, risks are gone up. Right. Yeah. So the question is like, how do you create either a financial instrument or some kind of tool that can network uh, like entrep- uh, entrepreneurs to provide a de-risking environment? Almost like an insurance, right? It's like, how can, yeah, I put all my time and effort into this, right? Like some people, there's like a few funds that does this, right? As an entrepreneurship fund. I forgot what the call the name of it is like entrepreneurs voluntarily donate like 5% of the company into this fund. And what, okay. what you buy out of that is like an insurance. Right. So you collectively, everyone who buys into this ha- collectively owns the entire pool and you're buying a piece of it. So, oh, wow. if one in 10 or two in 10 of these companies, uh, like, you know, uh, make it and eight or nine of them fail, or like, you know, like in like three years, five years, whatever, yeah, yeah. that's the average. Right. Well, the growth of that one company can feed the rest. Right. That's, that's to make up for the time and effort to be put into it. Right. Because, like, you know, like uh, my experience myself, like, you know, I, I founded three companies before I, I came to this one. And after a certain time, like, you know, after you exit your twenties, especially it's like the risk goes higher and higher because like you have less disposable time, uh, less, uh, just resources to throw at it. You got to thinking about more than yourself, right. Taking care of your parents, um, you know, that significant other that you're, that you're taking, uh, you, you need to like, you know, close the loop with, you know, uh, <laughs> buying assets, um, uh, you know, moving on in life, just appearances, all that stuff just yeah. comes into, into effect. Right. So that deliberate deleveraging of, uh, of, uh, of risk. Right? I think it's a yeah. big it's a big factor nowadays, right? have you put any thought into this? 100%. Have you experienced this?
0: Well, I mean, you know, the thing is I'm in my 20s. I'm in mm-hmm. my early 20s. So for me, it's like I'm taking this risk now because the way I see it is, you know, if I want to get a job later, I'll, I'll figure that part out. But for now, it's the this is the best thing I can do with my time. Uh, but I understand the risk factor and I'm always um, I find it really humbling when I see, you know, people who uh, you know are later in in the stages of their life and starting something and and they are taking a much bigger risk than i am because for me on my cv if this doesn't work out you know i can just you know i I know friends who've taken two year sabbaticals and they get a job at a great company right well Mm -hmm. i didn't do two years vacation i spent two years trying to build something that didn't work out whatever right but if you're spending in your 30s you've got a family you've got a wife you've got you know that's where it becomes a bit more complicated i totally agree now the insurance model that you're saying, I, I find that really interesting, um, although I can see it as a bad signal for investors if they see that, because then mm. they might think, oh, not, you don't think this you're is going to work <laughs> yeah. um, So I, I could see the, the, the hesitation there, but I think it's a, an interesting model. Um, and in terms of like, you know, in t- what you mentioned about the, the sort of fan of, of being an entrepreneur, that that is huge. I mean, I, I know there's so many real and there's so many fake entrepreneurs. You know, um, and I hate to say it because in a way, being a self-starter is being an entrepreneur. So if you're self-starting anything, you are an entrepreneur. Um, But a lot of people aren't solving any problems. And if you're not solving a problem, uh, you're not really bringing any solutions. You know, you might be doing something that people are interested in um, and and it might work. It might not work. But if you're not solving a real problem, something that's enough of a, a need for people to want, I wouldn't consider that necessarily entrepreneurship. And there's a lot of people who jump from a lot of projects, you know? Yeah. I, I know a few people like that who will do, you know, CEO of this two months later, CEO of that two months later, CEO. It's like, oh my goodness, what are you working on? Yes. you know. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and that's, but that's the excitement. That's the sort of um, jack of all trades, trying new things. So I'm not criticizing that sort of, you know, mentality because it's good. You're trying to find your niche, but there's this, also a point where you need to, Focus and and figure out what you're trying to solve. So, um, striking a balance there. Uh, and I, I know I'm regressing totally on the, on the question here. But just back to the what was this company that you were mentioning? The one that does the insurance? Like that's a really interesting model. How does yeah, that work? Yeah. So, exactly? it, so
1: um, there's a few funds that do this. Um, I, I've run across. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But like uh, one of the things that I really was interested in is an incubate incubator model of, surrounded this, right? So what it is is the incubator takes takes the the percentage, gives you all these resources, but you ha- you're pretty much buying into a pool, mm. right? And it's like a it's like maybe like if you put in five percent, one percent goes into the incubator services, right? Yeah. Uh, that's like their fee, but then the four percent is like your delivery risk portfolio. Right. Sure. Um. So the the incubator really masks that what you're talking about. You know, that that was the signaling to investors. You know, you say, oh, this went to this incubator that gave you X amount of resources, mentorship, guidance, and help build this out. Um. But it uh, ultimately, right, you have a buy-in for like ten different companies or twenty different companies in a pool.
0: Interesting. Right? Yeah. That, and, that's smart. Yeah. That, right? that that's a smart model. I like that. It, it is it could still be seen as a bad signal, I think, because I mean, investors are obviously going to look into who your investors yeah. are and they're going to read about it. so it's like, you know, you can hide it behind the, the idea of it being an accelerated, but they're still going to see that. But I think it's a smart idea for de-riskifying your time and effort in what you're doing, but also the investors, you know, they're yeah. now investing. in I just don't know how legally that works in terms of, the trickle-down effect. Uh, I'm gonna look into that after.
1: Yeah, I think uh, because it comes in the securities law, right, because the dispersion of it, like how does it get dispersed after, you know, is it like a dividend payment? like, how does that work? Like, you know, yeah. that, that becomes an issue. But I think as a model, as an entrepreneur who's going through the system, it's like, like you know, you, when you go through a cohort, especially like a, like, a, like a very intimate experience, like an incubator, and you see all these comp- people you graduate with, you know, like seven out of uh, seven out of ten of those people, their companies don't end up going anywhere. Like they end up flashing out, right? And it happens yep. all the time. And it's it's cool, you know, you go back to the drawing board and you get in, or you go and uh, go and do other other things, or sometimes people even join another another company that they knew, no, right? Yep. Or uh, they want to they want to drive forward. And it's part of seeding the, in the, in the ecosystem. But it's like that that uh, that whole point is like how to deleverage yourself and you know maximize being being taken care of right yeah and the insurance yeah. industry like the whole purpose of the insurance industry was doing this for like farmers and like people living in like in like rural areas and in disruptive environments right yeah. that, that, that 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 that's what drove that industry for like you know for hundreds of years
0: right yeah how and push that into entrepreneurship
1: yeah all right like how do we push that kind of thinking into entrepreneurship because we live in a very risky time to be an entrepreneur all right because yeah. the, the risks of not doing it the risk of not making an income the risk of losing out on income, right, uh, kind, kind of kind uh, of shoots, shoots you in the foot if you if you don't have uh, the, the right fallbacks or the right support or family, because my issue is, it's not necessarily the entrepreneurs who are doing it now. The people who are doing it now, they're actually part of like like I would argue like the the one percenters, right? They're the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who are again in the right location, who are in the right time periods, so with the right resources around them, have the right support, right? They just, you know, like there's a lot of people out there who might have innovative ideas, who might even have better ideas than what's available, but they just don't have access to the, the resources or time, or they might have people dependent on them to take care of them, right? They're they're handicapped by their their circumstance, right? Yeah. So as a society, it it benefits us when we lo- lift the standards, right? So uh, give everyone a more a more ground zero. So and one of the things I was really following is Andrew Yang. When he was running for running for U.S. president, right, the Yang Gang, um, the Freedom fi- Dividend. He was talking about, um, you know, a thousand dollar paycheck to every single American as like a dividend, right, a Freedom Dividend. And the concept goes back to like Sigmund Freud, not Sigmund Freud, uh, 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 F- uh, Friedman, um, in the 1950s Chicago School of Business. But uh, like uh, talking about uh, re- about capitalism, right? We talk, we think of capitalism as a, as a zero set game where like it's all about independence and like grit yep. and like you know if you can't make it, you don't have it, but not everybody starts as ground zero right and the it's idea true. idea behind him was like every, like you know like if you're doing nothing as a human being right now you get zero income your income is zero right but some people have assets under uh, behind them some people have income coming from those assets some people have family support some people have all the structure other people are handicapped by you know, lack of lack of structure. You know, having uh, having incompetent family or 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 things around them that suck up resources and time from them, right? So it's like if you can set the uh, set the bar from you know income zero to income positive, a thousand dollars a month. It's not enough to completely live off of, but it's like a cushion you can you can you can you can you can leverage, right? To be a detractor from all the negatives in your life, right? So like at least you have this, yeah, right? So that kind of thinking becomes really interesting.
0: Uh, although I don't think, you know, because there's different facets of, of, can you be an entrepreneur, right? And some in some cases it's people don't have enough money, um, and they can't sustain the entrepreneurial life. So I've, I have a few friends who've got full-time jobs working on side hustles, uh, on the side and, you know, they're, they're not ready to quit their job because they're not going to be making any money yet with their, their project. So it's going to take them, you know, maybe double the time that it's going to take me to build something out. Cause I'm doing this, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Right um whereas they're only working 10 15 hours so i agree with that risk factor but there's also the leap of faith moment where there's a moment in time once you've done the research once you've talked to enough people and so on that you need to take that leap of faith and 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 i think that leap of faith is entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. is when you take that risk where you know that what you're doing is either solving a real problem or you are screwed and you're not going to be able to pay the bills etc you know what i mean so i think that's entrepreneurship and not Necessarily working on different projects, um, one ends up working. Great, you're going to pursue that. It's taking risks and, and being bold in in those risks. Mm. Uh, myself, you know, it's a small risk. I have my family that's been extremely supportive of what I've been doing, uh, and, and thank God for that. Um, so, but but there are other risks. There are risks within my career, right? I rejected a certain job offers in California, in New York, here mm. in Toronto for this, and. Because I thought this would be the best way to, you know, start it off. And so everyone's got a risk. Now you just have to see what is your risk appetite, you know, and, and, and based off that. But I agree there could, we could find a baseline and insurance uh, for entrepreneurs, but wouldn't that defeat the whole purpose of entrepreneurship? If everyone sort of had a stake in each other's businesses, um, wouldn't that defeat the idea of like that pride almost of Knowing that you went from zero to one, as per the book, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's falling here, You know what I mean? It's like we yeah. all all want to go from zero to one, but a lot of us are going to stay at zero. Yeah. So some, but by, by leveling the playing field and having some form of insurance uh, that yeah. benefits all, it might not actually not benefit um, the one who wins necessarily. Mm-hmm. Not giving up all of his work and like like what's the what's the other criteria? Like how do you ensure in a way? The business, right? Is it he failed because he gave up? Is it he failed because he didn't build the right team? Or is it he failed because of the customer? Does he deserve did it? He like,
1: like yeah. Like, how do you know they deserve oh. that?
0: Yeah. yeah. exactly. Right. Like if he gave up, why? Yeah. Okay. So he gave up on something that didn't work because he gave up, but he still gets a part of something that did work because the other one didn't give up. Right. So that's where like, is a it becomes tricky? Yeah. And, you know, like, how do you define that, that fine line? And I'm sure some people are going to be just on the wrong side of that. Um, so, cause or else, you know, I'll start like 10 different businesses. I'll work for two months on each of them, get insured by these incubators. <laughs> now I've got a little stake in a bunch of companies where one of them might work, you know? Mm. Um, so, the, you know, and entrepreneurs are good at finding those loopholes, you know, entrepreneurs <laughs> are the kind of people to go through, you know, your terms and conditions and realize they can get a bunch of free stuff because you didn't, you didn't uh, pay attention enough. So, it's, it's, but it's an interesting thing. I think it's an interesting topic at the end of the day still of figuring out how to create that form of insurance uh, for entrepreneurs. And yeah, but my answer to that, you know what, is uh, customer validation. That is your insurance. Mm-hmm. If your customers love what you are offering, they are your insurance because you know that at the end of the day, they are still going to be paying for what, you, what you're what you building. And where you can sort of um, increase that insurance value, if you will, is finding ways to automate the maintenance of those customers meaning you know can you scale down operations cut off everything and still generate revenue with just two three people on uh, in the company or do you need people to hold on to everything uh, because or else it won't work right Mm -hmm. so i think that's where you can build that insurance is is through automation and maintaining everything you've got with your existing clients so that it's almost self self self-running you know um that's a tough one that is oh, a definitely.
1: tough one. I think that, that, that you raised a great, great point. Absolutely. Right. How to do, how do retract from uh, vulture capitalism, right? People who just suck yeah. resources out of the system. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just to wrap things up, man, like what's uh, what, what can we expect from you in the future? What's coming up?
0: Um, well, over the next couple of months, we're, we're keeping it down low in terms of PR these days. But uh, over the next couple of months, we're going to be launching... Uh, sort of a new integration that allows individual homeowners and property managers to just jump on our platform without us having to go through the whole onboarding process let's say um, and then in March sometime in March we're going to start our fundraising for for our seed round so that'll be exciting I'll, I'll share with you sort of the documentation of where we're going with that in uh, you know closest to the dates but we're going to start that process in March and I'm excited to get back into those into that groove, that fundraising groove once we've proven out a few things. Perfect, man. Yeah, that sounds great. If you can send a demo over